for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. today. Now let me start with an illustration this morning to help maybe in your conversation. Just imagine, just imagine that you, you are on an ocean liner, you're taking a cruise, and how, I don't know, but somehow you fall off the side of the boat, and uh, somehow you also don't know how to swim. You begin to drown. And someone on the deck happens to spot you, and they, they you're out there flailing in the water, and they said, hey, i got to help that person. And so they throw you a life preserver to help you. Once you grab onto that life preserver for dear life, they, they pull you back on the deck, and you cough, <laughs> cough water out of your lungs. People are gathering around you, waiting for you to gain consciousness, waiting to see if you're, if you're, if you're still alive and you're coming back to your senses. After you finally catch your breath, you open your mouth and imagine you say these words. Did you see the way that I grabbed onto that life preserver? How tightly I held onto it? Did you notice the definition in my biceps and the dexterity of my wrists? I was all over that thing. Now needless to say, that would be a bit of a bewildering and borderline insane response to draw attention to the way that you, you cooperated with in the rescue denigrates the whole point of what happened, that you were saved. Now, a much more likely response if that happened would be that you would go and immediately seek out the person who threw you the life preserver and you would thank them. Right? And not just superficially either. You would seek that person out. You would embrace them. You would ask them their name. You would bring them to dinner. And you may even give them, give them the keys to your new Tesla if you have one. Now, gratitude is a natural response to salvation. It does not require coercion or encouragement. That is, if the individual truly understands what happened. Gratitude will flow organically and abundantly from their heart. Now, let me ask you, did you hear that? Gratitude is a natural and proper response to salvation. Unfortunately, most people in our world are not grateful. Well, we may be thankful for a period of time, but then we quickly forget. And this includes Christians who have been saved by grace, yet don't live grateful lives. And so as we begin today, I would ask you to pause and ask yourself that question. What am I truly grateful for? Am I grateful for the salvation I have received in Jesus Christ? For the gift of my spouse or my family or my friends? See, I once heard someone say, you know you are truly, truly a Christian by how you sing Amazing Grace. 
I mean, think about those lyrics for a second. In fact, why don't we try something? I know you just sang a few songs, but why don't we try to sing the first stanza of Amazing Grace a cappella today? Ready? Can we do that? One, two, three. Amazing Grace, sweet the sound that saved a wretch. Lost, but now I'm found. Now, there is just something about singing a song like that a cappella, just the voices being raised. You did such a great job. I'm going to have to go back and tell the first service how much better you did than them. <laughs> Now, John Newton, the famous hymn writer, penned these words, and he was an empty soul who longed to be filled from above. He was a man filled with gratitude because he had received that life preserver. But if you think that you can save yourself by works, the song might take a different turn. In fact, the lyrics might go like this, excessive works, how sweaty the sound that came from the God in me. I once was bad, but now I'm good, thanks to my sincerity. Now, just imagine walking around and singing that, right? But which song defines your life, if, if you just ask yourself the question? Because you, you may be sitting here today and you're thinking, well, I'm a good person and I do good works. I'm proud of those works. Uh, maybe they're even religious works. And in your heart, you, you think that these works save you functionally. You think that. But friends, what we've been looking at in Romans is that this is not the gospel that Paul speaks about in this book of Romans. In fact, Paul, Paul has spent two chapters drawing, I mean painfully drawing out the nature and consequences of our sin. And now, by the grace of God, he is about to tell us the good news. We, we've got some light here. There's, there's some hope. We've come to Romans chapter 3, verse 21 to 31. And this this passage here has been called the centerpiece of the whole Bible. In fact, Leon Morris has called verses 21 to 26 the single most important paragraph ever written. The great reformer Martin Luther called it the chief point, the very central place of the epistle, and, and listen to this, of the whole Bible. This is the center. This is where it's at. In other words, today's passage is extremely, extremely important. And if you want to know the gospel, if you want to know what it is, you got to read these verses. You got to study these verses. You got to meditate upon these verses. And in this passage, we see three movements. First, we're going to see the gift. But then, second, we'll see that there's an objection. And finally, we'll see the price. So, the gift, the objection, and the price. Now, if you haven't noticed, the title section of our series in Romans here, we're calling it But Now. Hope for all who fall short. And Mark D'Augusto, our communications director, does a fabulous job of giving a visual language to our series. When deciding on the title for this part, we landed on but now because of the centrality of this passage. It's the hinge. If you're feeling beaten up and run down from all the talk about sin over the last four messages, hope is here. 
right? The last four sermons have been laying out the case against us. Paul has exposed our sin. He's, he's shown us the dark side of religion. Last week, if you were here, Pastor Dave brought down the hammer. Like, if you didn't think you were a sinner last week, hopefully you were convinced. The verdict is in. We are guilty. But today, today, God is about to change everything. Before we look at this passage, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask this morning, I plead, Lord, Holy Spirit, that you would come, that you would move on hearts, that you would prepare our hearts for the words you have for us in this section of Romans, Lord. It's the center, Lord. It's the glorious gospel that you, we declare, Lord. And so I pray for soft hearts. I pray for those who might know this, this passage and this message, Lord, that, that it would reawaken us, that we would have a, a new fire kindled within our hearts today, Lord. And if there's the, those that don't know or don't believe, Lord, I pray that you would, you would start something new and fresh today. Father, we ask for your grace and your wisdom as we look at these words, and we ask that we would leave changed, and we ask that in Jesus' precious name, amen. So listen to chapter 3, verse 21. Paul writes, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Now again, after two chapters of laying out the case against humanity, against the pagan, against the self-righteous, against the, the religious person, Paul says no one is good, yes, but now, he says, but now. God has done something about that. In my Greek classes in seminary, they called this verse the biggest but in the entire Bible. The biggest but. This verse marks a shift to a new era of salvation history. In fact, commentator Douglas Moo says this. He says, but now marks the shift in Paul's focus from the old era of sin's domination to the new era of salvation. As the wrath of God dominated the old era, so the righteousness of God dominates the new now, Paul has already used that term righteousness of God back in chapter 1, verse 17, but here it means the same thing. It means the justifying activity of God. That despite all the sin we've heard about up until this point, it, this is God's intervention to deliver his people from darkness. In more modern terms, it is our acquittal because of the grace of God. Now, notice also that Paul says this righteousness has been manifested apart from the law. It's been made known. In other words, God's not trying to hide his righteousness here. Christ has now appeared at the right time to die for the ungodly. Now, manifest can also mean to light up or to shine. And I have to admit, I'm not a morning person, but when I do happen to get up before the sun rises, which is not a whole lot, but when I do... I never forget the beauty of the light piercing the darkness. That's what this word means. It means the sun has risen on the darkest gloom of human history. People have labored to attain the righteousness of God through their own efforts, but now the light of Christ is shining. Christ, the righteousness of God, has been made known. And more than that, the law and the prophets bear witness to it in other words, the Old Testament as a whole has pointed forward to predict this work of God. So Paul continues, verse 22. He says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
Now, don't miss that. I know that's a very famous verse. But Paul is answering two crucial questions here. First, how do we get this righteousness? Through faith. Faith in who? In Jesus Christ. But the second question is, who needs this righteousness? Everyone. He reiterates an answer he's already given here. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He's already laid out that case. Now, the Greek word for sin is the word hamartia, and it means to miss the mark. It's an archery term. And this image is prominent in our graphic for the series. And if you look, you'll see multiple arrows on the ground because all of us miss the mark. All of us are unrighteous. In other words, all of us need to be made right. And this is a tension point for many of us, right? Because in our heart, we know, we know, we know, we know that we fall short. But we think if we work hard enough, we can attain righteousness, right? So what do we do? So we, we go to therapy, or we, we, we get our finances in order. We go to the gym, or we sacrifice for our kids, or we make sure our clothes are ironed, whatever it is. But Charles Swindoll says it this way. He says, genuine righteousness cannot be obtained through obedience to the law. No one can purge his, his or her body of cancer by eating healthy foods, I mean, shunning cancer-generating toxins is a good way to avoid contracting the disease. But once someone has it, a cure demands radical action. Because God's standard is perfection, and we will never achieve it. We need radical action. And in verse 24, Paul shows us the antidote to this sin disease. He says, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Now, in this verse, we read about the greatest gift ever given. And so let's unpack two key theological terms that are used here. First, that word justified. The word justified describes the legal status of a defendant before a judge. And in the ancient world, one's legal status determined their future. So if someone was declared just, they would not receive punishment. But if someone was declared unjust, they could face fines or imprisonment or, or worse. Now, let me make this even more clear, because for Paul and his readers, this was a really vivid image, because they lived under the authoritarian rule of the Roman Empire. And so in his day, the imperial governor of the region typically sat on this large, elevated, blue and white marble um, platform called the Bema, or the Seat of Judgment. And so here you can see a, a ruin from the, uh, the city of Corinth to this day, in this day. From there, the judge would judge judicial cases set before him. So as you read this verse, just picture yourself standing at the base of the seat of judgment. How would you plead? Because in those human courts, one had to prove his or her innocence to the judge. But if you're guilty, as Paul has just demonstrated in chapters 1 to 3... I mean, what could you do? In this verse, justified means to be acquitted by God of all charges brought against them. In other words, if you have faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross, you are cleared of all charges. Amen. Now, this is where, that's, where that second word, grace, comes into play. So again, imagine you're in this courtroom, and after the judge has heard your case, he declares you guilty. But instead of sentencing you, the judge then goes to the person who has the, the issue against you and pays your debt. That's grace. 
It's the Greek word charis, which specifically refers to undeserved and superabundant blessings that God bestows on his people. That though we are guilty, devoid of righteousness, Jesus Christ transferred his righteousness to us. The theological term is he imputed his righteousness to us so that we would be declared just, not guilty, righteous. It is what Martin Luther called the great exchange. So now let me get this straight. What Paul is saying is that even though we are unquestionably guilty of sin, God justified us. That even though we had so much debt, we should be slaves forever, he set us free? You see, the heart of the Christian gospel is the doctrine of grace. It's not something I earn, it's something I receive. And that makes all the difference. And so the question we all need to ask ourselves today is this, have I, have you, have I received that gift? Like a person who can't swim needs a life preserver, we need the grace of God. And when we receive that grace, does it make us proud or does it make us humble? Just like you don't boast about grabbing the life preserver, we should be grateful Live grateful lives for the gift God has given to us because grace is God's unmerited favor upon us. But the concept of grace is foreign in our modern American culture. Because don't we all believe, don't we all believe that we should be rewarded for the work that we do? Shouldn't we be recognized, right, for our works? Now, some of us in the room might want to act like the defense attorneys and shout out, objection! Well, if you skip down to verse 27 of chapter 3, you will see our second point today. We see the objection. And in the last few verses of the chapter, they take a bit of a left-hand turn, but I think it's really important for us to look at them. Because the people that resist most often coming to Jesus are the self-righteous, religious people. The rule followers who find their worth in following the rules. And again, in verse 27 to 31, Paul again speaks to them. He answers again some of their common objections. So verse 27, where then, he says, is boasting? It's excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. Now, at the beginning of this message, you remember I shared the two versions of the song Amazing Grace. The first version was sung by a wretch amazed by their salvation. And the second version was sung by a person proud of their works. Now verse 27 is answering the objections of that latter person, the the moralist. Again, the religious person, the, the person who thinks they have it all together. And their objection is essentially this. What do you mean? I mean, what do you mean I can't save myself by following the law? What do you mean I can't boast in my accomplishments? I I don't get it. Because the natural mode of our hearts is religious. We never want to be the person drowning over the side of the boat. We want to be the person who does the saving. But in the reality, reality is this. All of us are drowning. We need a savior. We need grace. And grace changes the way we live. Now, Tim Keller famously wrote in his book, The Reason for God, he wrote this story, and I'll never forget the story. He says this. <clears throat> he says, some years ago, I met with a woman who began coming to my church, Redeemer, and had never, 
ever before heard the distinction drawn between the gospel and religion, or the distinction between grace and what is often called works-based salvation or righteousness. She had always heard that God accepts us only if we're good enough. And she said the new message was scary. And he says, I asked why it was scary. And this is what she said. She said, if I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. Right? I'd be like a taxpayer who has rights. I would have done my duty and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if I'm a sinner saved by grace, there's nothing, nothing he cannot ask of me. Because grace changes the heart. And a heart changed by grace will be displayed in at least, at least three ways. The first will be there will be no boasting. Because a person who's saved by grace knows that it has nothing to do with what they did. It has everything to do with what Jesus did. We're drowning. He was the life preserver. Now, verse 28 shows us a second result. Paul says this, For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now, this verse, again, reiterates what Paul has been saying all along. Justification is about faith, not works. And so, secondly, a heart changed by grace will produce a true, saving faith. And it will be evident if you are trying to earn your salvation because because people will always be talking about trying harder to be better. But it's not about trying harder. It's about resting in Jesus. Remember, works don't change a heart. They flow from a changed heart. So ask yourself, am I trying to earn my salvation? Am I trying to justify myself? Stop trying so hard and rest in the finished work of Christ. Now, Paul makes one more point in verse 29. He says, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Now, here again, <clears throat> here again, he reiterates what he's been saying the last three chapters. God doesn't just save the Jews, the religious people, no, he saves the Gentiles, the pagan people. Because salvation doesn't come through the, following the rules. It comes by faith in the only one who perfectly followed the law. And so finally, a heart changed by grace recognizes that the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. And if the gospel is for everyone, grace-changed people are the best and most passionate evangelists there can possibly be. Why? Because grace-changed people are grateful people. And they never stop being grateful. They recognized they were drowning and they didn't deserve that life preserver, but they got it anyway. Grace changed people are so grateful they have to share this message with others. Why? Why? Because they recognize that salvation is a gift to be received, not a wage to be earned. It is the greatest gift ever given. So why would you not share it? How? How can you not share it? Now you may ask, does the law still have a place? Yes, and that's where Paul finishes in verse 31. He says this, do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. 
Now, that word nullify means to render useless. So the moralist, the religious person, is asking, why do we even have the law? And Paul answers, we uphold the law. Well, what does that mean? The answer is twofold. First, the law shows us our need for a savior because we can't keep it. But second, Paul is saying that the law is fulfilled through our faith in Jesus Christ. How? Well, later on in Romans, in chapter 8, verse 4, Paul says that those who are in Christ, that those who walk according to the Spirit, he says this, he says, they have the law fulfilled in them. How? What does that mean? In other words, our relationship with Christ by faith for the very first time, meets the law's demands. Why? Because Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law perfectly for us. And when you become a Christian, you are united with Jesus Christ. And so when God looks at us, he doesn't see our works. He sees the works of his son. He sees the blood of his son. Salvation is a gift to be received, not a wage to be earned. It is a gift freely given to us, but the gift itself was not free. What did it cost Jesus? That's our final point, the price. The price. Now, let's come back to verse 24 and consider one final key word that we see there. It's the word redemption. Yes, we are justified by the gift of God's grace. How? Through the redemption found in Jesus Christ. Now, to be redeemed is something we are familiar with in our modern vernacular. It means to buy back or to liberate by a purchase. And in Paul's day, people could easily fall into so much debt that the only possible way to avoid what was called debtor's prison was to become an indentured servant to some wealthy person, someone who could pay your debt. And your term of service was often determined by the amount of debt that you had. So a cruel master could could keep you in service indefinitely. That is, unless someone who was kind beyond belief purchased you for themselves and then set you free. You will no longer be a slave. You would be redeemed. Now, you may be sitting here today and you're saying, eh, I don't need to be redeemed. I'm good. I'm good. But let me ask you a question. Why do you work so hard in your career? So you can retire and be free one day? Why do you spend so much money on that relationship? So you can be married and free from the dating world? See, I think there is a thread woven through our modern cultural narrative that points us to redemption. Why is that? Because we have a sense of shame and guilt, and injustice, that we want to see redemption, right? I mean, just take, take the movies you watch, for example. Have you ever been to a movie that doesn't have a happy ending? I mean, there's some, but you leave incredibly unsatisfied because there's no resolution, right? And how many characters in movies need to have a redemption story? And if they don't have some kind of redemption story, they don't quite feel like real characters. Why? Because the need for redemption, for freedom, is hardwired into our souls. And Paul says redemption is found in Jesus Christ. Now at this point, some of the financially minded people in the room might be thinking, well again, how can this gift be free? Really? Right, what is the catch? I mean, we, listen, we live in New Jersey. I mean, come on, nobody pulls the wool over our eyes. 
<clears throat> Indeed, to pay the price of redemption in the ancient world was a great cost, even for wealthy people. Now again, imagine if you, if you purchased a slave and you set them free and then they acted like it wasn't a big deal. So some of us in this room <clears throat> have paid for our children's college tuition. And in, this, in today's world, listen, tuition can be like, what, 20000 50000 a year? And yet, and yet, I've heard of many college students squandering, come on, it's at least 30, let's come on. People squandering the investment, tens of thousands of dollars to go to school and party. And by the end of the second semester, they come home wondering, what am I going to do with my life? And the parents are then frustrated because their bank accounts are a lot smaller. My point is, salvation, the price of salvation, is not inexpensive, and so it should affect the way we live. A changed heart will be a grateful heart. So what did redemption cost Jesus? Verse 25 says this, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Redemption cost Jesus his life. He was our sacrifice of atonement, and we must receive it by faith. What? Faith in his blood. Now, that phrase, sacrifice of atonement, is the Greek word hilasterion, for which there is no direct English translation. Some versions use the term propitiation. And that's an old English word meaning to turn away wrath. Now, I recognize that is a technical theological word, but I don't want to glance over it because of the implications of it. Propitiation is directly related to the wrath of God. And what Paul is saying here, and don't miss this because it is so important, is that on the cross, Jesus turned the wrath of God from us onto him. He absorbed God's wrath against our sins so that we did not have to bear it. That's what propitiation is about. Now, you might object Maybe you're sitting here, you're at home, and you're objecting, and you're saying, that is so mean. I mean, I just, I, I cannot believe in a God like that. How can I believe in a God who is so cruel? Let me ask you another question, though. Do you get angry when you see injustice in the world? Don't you believe that injustice should be punished? You see, because there is sin in the world, God's wrath is necessary to punish it. Why? It is not because God is a wrathful, vengeful God. No, it is because God is a God of love. And you say, well, how can that be? And the best way I can describe it is, is to think about my daughter, right? Or think about your child. I love my daughter. She's always so full of joy. And if anyone were to harm her, to bring injustice upon her, anger would kindle in my heart. I would want the person who did her harm to be punished. Now, that is not because I am a wrathful, vengeful person. It is because I love my daughter. My anger proves my love for her. If, in fact, if I didn't get angry, I would start questioning whether I really loved her. And so here's the truth. The more loving you are, the angrier you will get. And that's what is behind the wrath of God and propitiation. Because God loves his creation. He must punish sin. And all of us, as he proved already, are guilty of sin. 
But now. But now. But now God presented his son, which literally that word can mean he made Jesus a public display to be the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins, to satisfy God's just wrath against the sin of the world. See, don't you see? Now, at the opening of this message, we mentioned about our Underground Sessions event, which is going to involve a Jewish rabbi. Now, you might not know this, but about every September, the, uh, the Chabad across the street comes to us and asks if they can use our parking lot for their high holy days in September. Uh, one of those days is the day Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. Now, the phrase, sacrifice of atonement or propitiation, has a related term in the Old Testament. It is the Hebrew word Kippurim, which is where they get the title Yom Kippur from. Now, historically, on Yom Kippur, the high priest would take two male goats before the Jewish congregation, and they would cast lots to determine the the goat's fate. One goat would die as a sacrifice, the other would live. And so the high priest would offer the goat on which the lot fell as a sin offering. And so the high priest would then enter the most holy place, the, the temple, where the Ark of the Covenant rested. And it was then that this otherworldly light, known as the, as the Shekinah glory, would, would, the very presence of God, would fall on the ark. This is what the Hebrews called the mercy seat. And the high priest would then sprinkle the blood of the sacrificed goat on the mercy seat to make atonement for the sins of the people. The sacrificial rite symbolized, was the, listen to this, was the satisfaction of God's holy wrath by means of death. His holy wrath against sin. And so the high priest would then come out and they would lay hands on the other goats, symbolically transferring the sins of the people of the community onto this scapegoat. And then he would allow this goat to run free into the wilderness, bearing on itself the iniquities of the people. It symbolized that God had removed or God had expiated the sins of the community. Now again, I recognize that is technical, but here is what I want you to see. Look back at verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. And so now, Jesus gave his blood, was put to death, and now his blood covers over all our sins so that we might receive the righteousness of God. So hear this today. Jesus is our propitiation. He bore the wrath of God against our sin on our behalf. Jesus is our expiation. He took away, he removed our guilt and our shame because of our sin. Why did he do this? He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because of his forbearance. He left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And so the second half of that verse shows us two more crucial items. It shows us that God, God has a just character, and God must always act in accordance with his character. So he demonstrates his righteousness. In other words, he must be just. How is he just? Secondly, it says, in his forbearance, he left sins committed beforehand unpunished. Now, what does that mean? It means that Jesus Christ is the final complete sacrifice once for all, as Hebrew says. All the sins, past and present and future, 
are satisfied in his death. Douglas Moo sums it up this way. He says, Paul's meaning is rather that God postponed the full penalty due sins in the old covenant, allowing sinners to stand before him without their having provided an adequate satisfaction of the demands of his holy justice. And friends, this is where we disagree with our Jewish friends. Because all of the Old Testament sacrifices were a shadow of what was to come. But now, Jesus' sacrificial blood has, been, has made us right with God. Our debt has been paid in full. The goat has left the building. Amen. Amen. Right? In place, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, that is where salvation comes from. Verse 26, he says, He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Now, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you can have confidence that God is both just and the justifier of his people. How can that be? Friends, this is the the beauty, the magnificent beauty of the gospel. That God must maintain his righteous character, yes, but he must also punish sin justly. And yet, because of his love for his people, he wants to save us. And so he offers Jesus Christ as a propitiatory sacrifice who provides the full satisfaction of God's justice. God is a God of both love and justice. Amen. Now, one of my favorite songs captures this truth brilliantly. It's the song Sweetly Broken by Jeremy Riddle. And every time I listen to that song, if you haven't heard it, you should go look it up and listen to it. I am reminded of the amazing truth of the gospel because he writes this. He says, to the cross I look, to the cross I cling. Of its suffering I do drink. Of its work I do sing. That on it my Savior, both bruised and crushed, showed that God is love and God is just. And that is fabulous theology. That he is just and the justifier. So today we look to the cross. We cling to the cross, church. And if you've never believed, you need to put your faith in the cross. The cross is an act of love. The greatest love story ever written. Where Jesus became our redeemer. Now at this point, even at this point, some people object And the question some people ask is, well, how can a good God punish anyone? It goes against the cultural narrative that, that is really anyone worthy of God's punishment? I mean, if God is truly a God of love, wouldn't he save everyone? But such a question is to miss the point. The question Paul is actually asking in Romans is how can God save anyone? Like we... None of us deserve salvation. He spent three chapters telling us how sinful we are. And the miracle of the gospel is that even the depraved, in the depraved state of humanity, God saves a people for himself. Remember, salvation is a gift to be received, not a wage to be earned. And listen, I suspect there's some here today or there's some watching at home who have never fully and truly placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You haven't received the gift, but today you can. 
And maybe you say, Bob, I've never understood it like that, or I've never, I've been walking around with shame and guilt, and I've been trying to justify myself with my actions. And if that's you, I suspect you've been living your life in fear. Like fear that you'll be found out. Fear that, that you won't be accepted. And today I want you to know that you can experience the acceptance you're longing for. If you know him, Jesus Christ purchased you at great cost, his blood. To him, you are worth his life. Today, I want you to know that whatever guilt and shame you're carrying, you do not need to carry it anymore because Jesus took it away. The goat has left the building and now you don't need to live in fear anymore. Fear doesn't change our hearts. Love does. The love of our Redeemer. And that is good news. Turn to somebody, turn to your neighbor and tell them that's good news. All right, let's try that again. You got to tell them that is good news. That's right. Amen. It's the good news for sinners like you and me. Our salvation is not based on what I have done or not done. My salvation is based on what Christ has done. Jesus Christ, our loving Savior, has given us his righteousness. And when we come to the Father at the end of time, he sees Christ's work, not ours. So let me close with a story. Just imagine, once upon a time, there was a king. A king who looked from his palace window and saw one of his children collecting flowers in a distant field. And the king watched as the child collected the flowers into a bouquet and wrapped it in a royal ribbon with royal colors. And the king smiled because the ribbon indicated that the flowers were collected as a gift for his own pleasure. But then the king noticed that the child, because he was a child, gathered not only flowers. From time to time, the child also added weeds from the field and some ivy from the border of the woods, and some some thistle from the unknown banks of ditches. And so to help his laboring child, the king gave his oldest son, who sits at his right hand, a mission. And the king said to the eldest son, go to my garden and pick from the flowers that grow there. And then when your sibling comes to my throne room with his gift, remove all all that is unfit for my palace from his bouquet. Make it fit by putting in its place the flowers that I have grown. And so the eldest brother did exactly as his father instructed. When the younger child came to the throne room, the brother removed the weeds, the ivy, and the thistle, and he substituted all the flowers from the king's garden. And then the firstborn son rewrapped the royal ribbon around the bouquet so that his sibling could present his gift to the king. And with a beaming smile, the younger child entered the throne room, presented his gift, and said, Here, my father, is a beautiful bouquet that I prepared for you. And it's only later that he would understand that his gift was made acceptable by the gracious provision of his father. And so like the elder brother in the story, Jesus Christ makes provision for us. That when we go before the father one day, he will not see our infested bouquet based on our works. He will see the beautiful bouquet that Jesus prepared for us based on his work. 
He's washed us clean. Salvation is a gift to be received, not a wage to be earned. So I hope you see today how your heavenly Father has provided for you in Jesus Christ. And I wonder if you would place your faith in him today. Let me pray for us as the worship team comes for one final song. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, loving Savior, Holy Spirit, we we come before you and we marvel once again at the gospel. We marvel that even though everything around us seems dark, you are the light that has been manifested. You are piercing the darkness, Lord. You love us. You love us, Lord. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your provision, Lord. And Lord, I pray, if there is some in here today that do not know you, that have never received that gift, Lord, I pray that they would pray a prayer. That if you would pray after me, you would say, Lord Jesus, I recognize today that I am a sinner. The case against me is final. I'm guilty. And yet my heavenly Father provided for me a way to salvation. You, Lord Jesus, your sacrifice on the cross, your work has made me clean. I want to receive that gift today. I want to turn from my sin and turn to you, Lord Jesus, because it is only in you that salvation is found. There is no other name under heaven by which salvation is found other than your name. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would unleash yourself today, Lord. Maybe there's even some here today who who have been following you for a long time and have grown cold to the gospel, Lord. I pray that you would warm up people's hearts, Lord. Awaken people and warm us up today, Lord Jesus, that we may come to the cross again and marvel, marvel at your love and your sacrifice. It's in Jesus' name that we pray that. Amen.